fever, don't breathe on me. I'm a believer in nobody. Won't let me leave cause I've seen something. Hope I don't sneeze, I don't. Really, we just need to feel something. Only pretending to feel something. I know you're dying to run. I wanna turn you around. Please remain calm. The end has arrived. We cannot see you. Enjoy the ride. This is the moment you've been waiting for. Don't call it a warning. What's going on, everyone? Coach Aaron here. Welcome to the Squats and Science Podcast, episode number 22. Coach Joe won't be on this episode because he's busy with the reopening of our gyms in New York City. But instead, I'm joined today by John Downing to delve deeper into the topic of meat directing. Back in episode number 16, we discussed meat director logistics, but mostly focused on how to run a local meet. So John figured it'd be a cool idea to come on and discuss the additional logistics and the extra cost involved in running a national meet since he ran the 2019 USAPL Collegiate National Championships in Columbus, Ohio. And I actually helped him out with that as a co-technical secretary for the championship with Scott Dobbins. So hopefully this gives you all a little bit more insight into what goes into running a meet and where your money actually goes to. So let's get right into the interview. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode. Coach Aaron here, and I am with John Downing. What's going on, John? What's up, man? Not much. How's everything going? Life has been interesting via the COVID, uh, both as someone involved in powerlifting, but also as a teacher. So it's been quite interesting. Yeah, you said you've been doing all your classes from home? Uh, so the year ended that way, but currently our district has us doing all virtual, but I still have to go into the school. Cool. All right, well, we'll get right into it. We've done a previous episode, for those of you who listen, on uh, meet director logistics and all the expenses and everything involved more for a local meet. So John thought it'd be a good idea for him to come on and go over like the same concept for, for a national meet since he ran collegiate nationals last year. So I figured it'd be a, a good idea, and that's why we have John on. Before we get started on it, you want to give us a little bit of a history on your lifting career? Yeah, sure. Uh, I started powerlifting in 2003, um, back when it was mostly all equipped or if you lifted raw it, you know you were the odd one out um which is weird these days um yeah. but i started in high school um in high school i got the privilege to meet dave ricks my junior year of high school he came to do a seminar at my school uh he wanted to explain the difference between usapl and nasa which is another organization that still remains um and so it was sweet to meet, meet him at the time, and I already knew about a lot of his accomplishments. And so that was my first USAPL meet was in 2007, I believe. Um, and then from there, I kept doing it through college. Ohio State didn't have a team at the time, so I competed on my own. Uh, towards the end of my college years, I started doing the Arnolds. Uh, I won the Arnold in 2015 as the 83. And then I also broke the uh, squat American record that year. 
What was the record? Uh, it was 275. It's not that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like 313 or something. Yeah, 313, yeah. So it's gone up, but, you know, it's still, it's great to see how the sport's grown, you know. Like 275 at the time was unheard of. <laughs> yeah, and then now you're trying to make a comeback in the 83s? Yeah, I mean, the, this COVID year kind of put a damper in it. I had a plan of coming to Raw Nationals and doing really well, but, you know, that's okay. Now just more time to train and grow. Yeah, so save it for next year. Yeah. All right, well, we'll get right into it. The, the first thing I want to talk about is the planning and the preparation. So for local meet, it's pretty easy to plan. You might even just do it like in a gym that you know. It's easy to get the venue or maybe you just email or call up some hotels, find a venue, and then you apply for the sanction. But for something like a national level meet where you're going to have 1,000 plus lifters, uh, you got to have everything planned and prepared beforehand and you have to submit a bid. So you want to tell us a little bit about the proposal process for collegiate nationals? Yeah, so... I would say that our planning actually started out about three years out from the date. Um, anyone running a meet of that size, like, <clears throat> I don't know how you would do it with less time. Um, I first bid for the meet against Scott Dobbins in San Antonio. I believe that was 2016. Yeah, 2016. And I lost the bid that year to him. My, my bid was quite not well put together, let's say. Um, and, and Scott, you know, he ran the room, he knew everyone in there. He ran it like a business meeting. And, you know, the only thing I had going for me was the meet was going to be in Texas two years in a row. Um, but what that did give me though, preparing for that bid was even more time to plan, um, build connections, uh, which are very important for a meet of this size. Um, and, and honestly, like those three years were great because without that time, I could have not put on the meat that we we collectively put on. I should add that Arian was a huge part of this as well. When you say you built connections, you mean you actually like met people for your city, right? To tell me running this kind of big event. Yeah, my city, but also like, you know, I was not friends with Scott before then. Um, so that was a connection. Um, you know, I got a lot closer to Mike Z that year. Um, people meeting people like Luis, who became a huge part of the process. And so that first year of planning was very instrumental in just meeting people and, you know, putting um, kind of like a hook out there. Like, you know, this is the meet I'm dreaming of. Can you help me make it happen? Um, and, you know, Troy, uh, Troy Cunningham was a big part of that as well. You know, just tell me that it could actually happen if I put the effort into it. Yeah. So and for people who don't know, for Collegiate Nationals, the Collegiate body gets to vote on it. So it's good to have a a team of people that are going to be involved with the meet. And in this case, Mike and, and uh, Luis are part of the collegiate, uh, I would say the collegiate people, and they've, been, they've competed before, coach at the collegiate level. They know everyone, and so it kind of helps your, your bid to actually have people vote for you. And I remember that, that Scott Dobbins bid, uh, bid, he actually put an entire video together going over how the meet's going to be on campus and it's going to be at the stadium. And it was like this really big thing and it really hyped everyone up. And that's kind of why he beat you out. You had like just like the standard bid of a like presentation of a PowerPoint presentation. He had this huge like video and and he was going to bring it back to a campus, which it hadn't been in a long time. Correct. And I mean, I still think it's a very important thing. Like the closest we could do is downtown Columbus. Um, but it was certainly focused around the colleges and, you know, 
we wanted it to all be all about the colleges, every aspect of the meet itself. Yeah. And part of the proposal is like, you have to outline everything, right? Like your, your venue, your hotel, your airports, everything like that. Yeah. And I, you know, I kind of, when I, when I, when we did the bid, I had the team do it for me, even though I put it together, but, um, from the get go, you know, I, I laid it out that everything would be a Lyco. Um, and I followed through with that. And I think it is really important at a national level that the equipment is not only high caliber, but consistent across the warm up room and the main platform. Um, I'm sure you've experienced several people new to the scene when they come in and they set their rack heights and only to realize that the platform rack heights are different. Um, it's not that it has to be that way. I just think when it meets of this high caliber, it should be that way. And with that, you know, we laid that out. We talked about uh, the audio, the the LED walls that we'd be using, which at the time had only been used once at the Arnold. Um, and to use them across five platforms was unheard of at the time. And, you know, building these connections made me realize that something of that magnitude was possible. It was just about making it happen. Do you remember how many warm-up racks you had? Uh, altogether in the venue, we had a total of, I think it was... 22 Lyco racks, 15 in the warm-up room, two for just for heights, and then five on the main platforms. And then the five on the platform were also the, the custom Ohio State ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so 22 Alicos in one building. I don't know if that's uh, happened before. No, I think Scott might have said I broke the record or I was close. I can't remember. He's the one that knows all of those facts and figures. Yeah, it's definitely important because that local meets you have like people like like you said, you like get the rack heights in the warm room on the wrong rack. Or even there's times where I've gone to a competition where the warm room might be like a Texas power bar and pound plates. And then you go on the platform and it's a, a stiff Alico bar and Alico plates. And so sometimes you have to gauge the warm-ups differently, which can hurt the lifters. So for a national level, national caliber experience, you want to have that consistency. Um, so that's just something else that goes in is how much money around did you spend on buying all this Alico equipment? Oh man. Yeah. We're just going over the stats. So collectively, um, and this is with a bulk discount. It was $71,000. You know, which is a lot of money. Um, It's also a lot of money when, you know, there's also a risk of losing money and, it's not like I could ever bankroll that myself. Um, but what I would say was very important to my mindset and my process was I extended the bulk discount that I got per rack to individuals if they wanted to buy equipment. They just had to um, put the money up front and they'd get the rack after the point. And so, you know, an Alico rack brand new, the old version was $3,600 plus shipping. Um, so extending them the discount down to about three grand per rack, uh, a lot of people bid on that. And I, that was my plan, right? You know, I don't need this equipment afterwards. This is one and done. Um, so let's help everyone out. And it really helps even Ohio out now because we have a Lyco racks all over the place. And it makes running meets in the long run a lot easier. Yeah, you guys just ran the meet this past weekend with all the Lyco, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the new racks. Those are nice. Yeah, yeah so... Not only did you have to spend 70000 but some of that payment you had to actually make before you even got any revenue from the entry fees. Yep. So you have to have the cash available up front. And then same thing for the racks that you were selling to these other people. You paid for it first, right? And then you have to wait until you got the money from them. Yep. 
So, but it was uh, a great way to it was a great way to raise funds and mitigate loss as well. Yeah, and not only get more legal racks in Ohio, but just in the U.S. as well, since we don't have as many here in the U.S. compared to like Europe. Probably every European Championship is all legal, everything. Yeah, I think the only two people to have done something like this was me and Mike. Uh, Mike did the same thing in Providence, where they bought a bunch of equipment. Yeah. So we we you, probably collectively doubled the number of Alika racks in the country. <laughs> yeah, and then you mentioned uh, Luis as well, who, who is getting more involved with the national meets, like Open Nationals, Raw Nationals. He's also getting involved with the Arnold. Um, people see the big screens and they think it's amazing. They see Gino's face on there. They they see all these cool graphics on there, but they don't realize how expensive it is for Luis to get a an 18-wheeler filled up with all these screens and drive it across the country to come to the meet. So you want to go over some of those expenses? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I'll give you the collective number. So just in audiovisual, we spent um, $80,543. Um, and that's between the live stream, which was, you know, a really good live stream. Um, Luis, um, the hotel cost, because they had an in-house audiovisual company that we had to pay just to raise our stuff. And that was $13,000 alone. Um, you know, we spent $150 just on miscellaneous items, whether it be an adapter, this, that, or the other. Um, banners, backgrounds, you know, Raspberry Pis. It was like another $2,500. So it's, the stuff adds up whether you know it or not. Yeah, that, that's pretty crazy that like before the meeting even started, you have $70,000 of illegal equipment. And then about eighty thousand dollars of uh, audiovisual for live stream, and then for those screens. Yeah, and, and honestly, we didn't sit on the money either. Um, when we started having money coming in, we just started, you know, paying people off. I know Luis, for instance, usually um, with his contracts, fifty percent of it has to be paid by a certain date. Sometimes that doesn't always happen with uh, the bigger meets, just because you know, powerlifting is a almost like a hobby for him with his business as well. He does bigger events, Madison Square Gardens, other things, but I still just wanted to get money in his hands as fast as possible because, you know, I treated it like a business in the fact that it should be treated like a business, you know. You wouldn't necessarily have to know anything about powerlifting but be a great event planner to do something like this. Yeah, just being able to budget everything and schedule everything would, would go a long way regardless, like you said, how much you know about, about powerlifting. Um, We'll go into some of the costs with the volunteers. What were some of the hotel rooms for bringing in all these referees and spotters and oh, loaders? Man. Let me just say that that last, like, three days before the meet happened, there was a storm. We had people having to get flights redirected. We had flights of some refs canceled, and so we had to fly some people in the very last minute. Um, and, you know, it's not like we weren't going to do that. We are going to do whatever it, you know, took to make this meet happen. Um, so we paid all the hotel room fees. Um, that collectively was about eighteen thousand five hundred dollars uh, just for hotel rooms. Uh, food we budgeted eight thousand dollars for the week, that four days. Um, and I decided to give cash in hand for food rather than uh, go through the hotel because the hotel would have gave a box lunch that would have been about twenty bucks, and all he would have got was a Coca cookie, chips, and a sandwich. So. 20 bucks goes a lot longer when you're not paying it to the hotel. You know, in hindsight, I think that was still the best decision um, because people then had the option of what they wanted to get with their money. Um, and that $20 was regardless. It wasn't if 
they chose to get money towards their hotel room or not, the hotel room was happening no matter what. Um, because when you have a meet of this size, you need to honestly cater to your refs as much as possible because these meets are dependent upon the refs that show up. Um, we paid collectively over $2,000 to spotters and loaders. Sorry, $5,000 to spotters and loaders, uh, whether that be other college teams helping out. Um, we also recruited just at the university level our, our club football team at Ohio State, so not the varsity guys, but the club team to come spot and load, um, and a lot of their rec sports. That way all the money stayed in the college sphere and nowhere else. With the uh, the food, I remember it was twenty dollars uh, per session you worked right for the meal. Yep. Yep. I, I remember we argued with that because I was the, the co-technical secretary, and I was like, "Just give them twenty bucks for the whole day." And you're like, "No, we're gonna give them twenty bucks per session, and then they can they can go downstairs for lunch and dinner and get whatever they want from all the options there." Yeah, and I mean they should, right? You know, people yeah. need fed, and like so, that buys you that buys you a lot of pizza. Yeah, so someone could have came in to referee had their hotel room covered and then let's say worked two sessions that day got 40 bucks and then gone and spent however much they wanted on food maybe they only spent like 15 bucks on food and they could have pocketed the rest for themselves to cover their other expenses yeah and i like i don't see anything wrong with that meets of these size like you know you got to help the refs out as much as possible yeah uh the other thing was we since for a meet this size people don't realize how many referees are needed i think we had something over 100 referees because not everyone can work every session every day and a lot of those referees have to be the national or international because they're the ones who can be on the platform refereeing or in the jury um, so we did have to fly some people in and play, pay for their plane tickets uh, so that was like an additional cost that's uh i don't know if you included that in what you were listing yeah it was like another two thousand dollars yeah um so there were some people that we knew they were going to work a lot of sessions on a lot of days and we were desperate for referees. So they got their plane ticket costs uh, covered. They got their hotel room costs covered. And then they also got all their food costs covered for every session that they work. Plus maybe a little bit extra if they didn't spend all of it. Yeah. And, I, and thinking about that too, and like only the, in the college sphere, can you pull this off? But I also like over the course of four years, um, developed at least 25 refs just in Ohio, um, an additional th three or four national refs in Ohio. And, you know, again, planning this this far out, if you start planning three years out, you literally can uh, produce national refs, right? Like if, if you know you're at some point going to do this, why not treat it like a machine and push through refs? Yeah, like when Mike ran the Collegiate Nationals in Providence, the lucky thing with being up there in the Northeast is all the states are very close. They're small, yes. it's easy to travel to. And they have so many referees up there in Pennsylvania and New York and Massachusetts and even in Maryland and, and all those areas. Whereas the Midwest and the West for USAPL is a little bit smaller. And so, yeah, it's harder to find those national international referees. Um, but again, this goes into the planning and preparation. You spent three years preparing which referees could take their national referee exam before the meet. And I remember some of them were trying to take it at the Arnold before the meet. Um, and some people even gave their ex national exam at the uh, early weigh-ins at Collegiate Nationals. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's you got to do what you got to do. And, and the better thing about Collegiate Nationals is not only was I doing that, but there's college teams all over the country doing that. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, like Andy Hernandez lifted day one, and then she was a technical controller every day after that. 
which again is great because if that technical controller wanted to get the food money, they could, you know, and it just benefits everyone all around. Yeah, I think some of those people also try to take their exam at the other nationals, like high school nationals, something like that, because it was down in the south. So they try to, to basically take their national referee exam there to be prepared for collegiate nationals. So yep. it, it was it was pretty crazy trying to email everyone I possibly could, message everyone I could, talk to some referees to be like, hey, talk to other referees in your state, get whoever you can who's interested to come over here and referee for us. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the other bigger costs that you can think of? Uh, I, I would guess drug testing was pretty high up there. Oh man, yeah. Um, so just in the regular drug testings, it was about, um, and so I never updated these numbers after the meet because I was dead to the world, uh, but we had um, originally planned for uh, 106 regular drug tests. But at national meets, you also have to do full panel tests um, because of it being a national meet. And a full panel test is more expensive. So between the two, it was right under $13,000 just for drug testing. Yeah, so you have to do the minimum 10%. And then from that 10%, you have to do 10% that has to be the full water panel. Yep. And so I believe okay. that came out to be 10. Uh, we we're checking the you know the numbers daily because you know we knew what the meet started at um but by the last day if we didn't have to do as many obviously all of the costs in my head knew that we had to just do the bare minimum and no extra to make sure we at least tried to break even yeah so these might not be as much as the the equipment cost or the audio and visual cost but all these little things add up it's like you're paying eighteen thousand for hotel rooms you're paying thirteen thousand for drug tests you're paying $8,000 just for food, uh, $5,000 for extra spotters. Um, so it's just, this is where all the money's going for the people that are wondering, oh, why are they charging this much for an entry fee? Uh, which I'll throw in there too. What was your, your structure for charging the entry fee? Yeah, and so, you know, a lot of people told me I actually should have went up higher than I did, but I, you know, I just went up five bucks from what I believe Scott did the year before. Um, and so the early bird was a uh, hundred bucks. Um, and we had 425 people sign up at that amount. Um, and then the mid-range was 125, and we had 368 people sign up at that point. And then I never did the total number of people that signed up the last minute, but that was 150. And we had 1068, so that's still about 400 people roughly at that price point. Um, Obviously, there's team fees, you know, teams pay, but not a lot of money comes from the team fees. Um, you do get a lot of money from spectators, especially if you try to push uh, the fact that it's a college meet in a city that loves college sports. Um, so I never had a final spectators count, but I do believe we made about $6,000 off of spectators, um, which is a lot for a powerlifting meet. Yeah. Um, and... Part of that too was like I did something where we advertised lifters across the city. And so we had, we bought a bunch of banner posts uh, across downtown Columbus um, to kind of advertise the meet. And strategically, I put some in front of the hockey stadium and it was a home weekend for the playoffs of the NHL as well. So we had some good foot, foot traffic of people that probably had never seen powerlifting before. 
Yeah, I got my my banner right here in my room somewhere. Yeah, I still have some to uh, ship out, some addresses I don't have, and then Scott's. I'm just going to make Scott wait a very long time. <laughs> so, so that covers kind of covers some of the major expenses. Then obviously there's lots of little small expenses here and there that slowly add up over time. Um, you also mentioned some of uh, uh, the things that can go wrong. Uh, do you want us to tell the elevator story? Uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell that story. Um, so, oh man, these are bad, <laughs> these are bad memories, Aaron. Very bad. <laughs> uh, so we started setting up about 8 p.m. the night before the meet. Um, sorry, night before, not night before the meet, like a day and a half out. Um, and there's two freight elevators in the hotel, which I would never recommend to anyone running a meet of this caliber, not on the first floor. Um, and so we loaded up all of our wood because we were building raised platforms because we had bought them off of Scott and the meet the year before. Um, and <laughs> raised platforms look better. There's no if ands or buts about that like i think everyone should do them should everyone do them the way that scott dobbins and his dad built them maybe not uh but they were pretty sturdy by the second year uh, because scott had issues with them collapsing a little butt bit year one um which is a great story from him but uh you know they made the they made the event look special they truly did um and it was probably i don't even know crazy amount of weight in wood and it actually broke one of the freight elevators and so at that moment you know my heart probably was in my shoes and i thought that this meet was never going to happen um we had to wait for the elevator to essentially fall to the first floor and before it even started falling like we had people in the elevator we had to get out so that's scary um and the guy at first told us that we wouldn't be able to open the doors for a day. And at that point, I was just, I wanted to go home. <laughs> so it got down to the floor, but then we had to end up carrying most of it up and using the other freight elevator, but piece by piece rather than the neat stacked pallets that we had. Um, and so that's, the images of that still circulate around, but I was not, I was not in a good mental point at that and we had planned on doing all of the platforms and having them all set up that night but there was no way after that and so we literally didn't finish putting the platforms together until about noon the next day yeah i i just i just remember for people picturing the elevator didn't like free fall straight down it was just slowly losing fluid and slowly going down which is good for the people that were inside but the bad thing was we had to wait for it to like slowly go down go all the way down to the first floor and then it actually goes a little bit past the first floor. So it actually went down a little bit, which means you can't roll anything out with a cart or anything. So we had to like bring out the wood one by one and then take it all the way to the other side to the other, other elevator and use the other elevator for the, the rest of the weekend. Yeah. Which slowed everything down so much. And it's it was just not, yeah, it's just like with, with lots of things, including with running meets, is like anything that can go wrong goes wrong. And, and that was one of the ones I remember definitely going wrong. Yeah. And like, man, you know, I, I, I looked at them like raw nationals in, well, not just raw nationals. They had equipped nationals, but raw nationals in Lombard, like seeing images of them using a forklift and bringing it right in. I was like, wow, that, 
that would have been great. You know, we'd been done in like three hours and not two days. Um, but I mean, so there's two ways to look at it. Would I do it in that exact venue ever again because of the freight elevator? Probably not. Um, but there's actually a loading dock that was connected to that hotel that we weren't allowed to access that weekend because of something else. And so we could have brought everything in through the front doors where the spectators came in through a loading dock. And that would have made life a thousand times easier. <laughs> but life isn't that easy. No, never. It's never easy to powerlifting me, right? Yeah. One, one of the other things that went wrong, which uh, ended up being a bigger expense, is do you want to go over the uh, meat t-shirts? Yeah. So there's lots of emotions there as well. Um, <laughs> but at the time I first bid on this meet, um, USAPL had a contract with bodybuilding.com for free t-shirts. And I was supposed to be the last event that got those free t-shirts. Um, and so knowing that something is free, I'm never going to charge someone for it because I just, I'm the type of person that believes that that's wrong. Um, did that come back to bite me in the butt? Yeah, uh, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, so at the time, you know, everyone that signed up for the meet got a shirt for free as it should have been because I thought the shirts were going to be free. <laughs> um, but that wasn't the case by the time the meet came around and there was some back and forth and some arguing. Um, but at the end of the day, I also had to foot that cost. Um, so that was about, let's see. Oh, it was about $4,800 in t-shirts. Um, you know, I still have on my, uh, it smacks me in the face. I still have on my budget bodybuilding.com providing t-shirts. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, they had that contract for a number of years too. Cause I think when Steve Mann ran raw nationals, which is 2015, I think he gave out the shirts for free. I think when Josh Rohr ran raw nationals, I think he gave out the shirts for free. He did, yeah. And, and the meat directors can choose the idea of the contract was to give the shirts to the meat director for free, and then they can choose if they want to charge for it to help with the, the, the expenses that they're incurring. But some meat directors decide to just give it out for free like you. So then you were supposed to be the last one, and then they said, nah, no, we're not doing it. So you plan and prepare your entire budget, but you always have to have some kind of miscellaneous category maybe for, again, yeah. things go wrong. And in this case, it happened to be a $5,000 thing that went wrong. Yeah. And, and like the only thing that really upset me, like I said before, like I started planning all this almost three years out, uh, really hardcore planning it two years out with contracts signed. Uh, I firmly believe stuff of this magnitude, like two years out minimum, um, because you get a better quality meet when you're not rushing to do stuff at the last time. Um, like, I don't know how like the other bigger meets are only a year out. Like I just don't, blows my mind from a business aspect um but you know what other people have bigger budgets than a little college team trying to run a big meet yeah the, the other expense i forgot to uh ask about is because it depends on i guess on what kind of deal you make with the the venue because you're bringing a certain number of hotel room nights and everything like that did you have to pay for the actual venue as well so as long as i filled 80 percent of the room block the venue is free which we had no problem with that. We almost filled three hotels downtown Columbus. Um, but I, I would say that's also the reason I picked the venue. Um, you know, Scott's meet by far 
one of the best venues I've ever been to in my life. Like College Stadium, that meet, like hands down, one of the best powerlifting meets I've ever been to as well. Uh, but one thing I think we certainly were able to do better was the proximity of everything. Um, college students love the ability to walk everywhere and not having to jump in a bus was a huge bonus for a lot of these kids coming to the meet. Um, even the shuttle from the airport, what was it, like three bucks or something? Yeah, like with the with the Scott Dobbins meet, I guess for all the Texas teams and maybe Louisiana and other nearby states, it was easy for them because maybe a lot of them just drove. They didn't have to worry about the airport versus for us where I flew from Florida. It's like you either have to fly into a bigger city and then take a bus or drive or something like that. Or you have to pay the extra money to go into the smaller city and then at whatever the expense is going to be, you have to pay the extra expense. Um, but yeah, for Columbus, it's a lot easier to fly into, but the plane tickets are cheaper. And then, yeah, I took the bus for like 275. Yeah. And like not having to like, drive to a venue once you're in your hotel is awesome too it's just that peace of mind especially morning of not having to worry about traffic or random stuff popping up or a flat tire like just being able to walk across the street or down your elevator to the venue like that's great yeah a bunch of the hotels are connected so you don't have to actually like go out and cross the street or anything like that you can just take the little path and then again that food court being there is like you can choose from a bunch of food whatever you want and that's why Scott should run another collegiate nationals. I hear College Station has hotels on site now. So it, he he had some uh, some issues, like you said, with the platform and stuff for his meet and some some big expenses. The the expense I always uh, laugh about is the, the venue want to charge him for the food and like the bacon oh, yeah. was going to cost like a thousand dollars per day or something. Yeah, he did. He ended up losing a lot on that because they charged him overtime for all of the workers. Um, and again, there's lots of crazy expenses you'll never imagine until you get the bill. And then you're like, you know, where the heck did this come from? Yeah, in that case, obviously, it was because it was on campus and they had to use the business that's contracted with the stadium to provide food and all that stuff like that. So that became a whole other issue of what food can the lifters bring in and what they can't bring in. Yeah. So that one was pretty crazy. So with all of this stuff that we've gone over so far, all these big expenses, a couple hundred thousand dollars of expenses, all these things that went wrong with the the elevator and, and with the t-shirts and other things. Uh, a question I have for you is if you can go back in time to three, four years ago and tell your old self when you're putting the bid together, would you tell yourself to do it again or would you tell yourself don't do this? Um, I mean, part of me is like I'd tell myself not to do it. Um, however, with how this year's gone um, and no, not knowing about what 2021 is going to look like as well, I, I'm pretty uh, happy to have run one of the best collegiate nationals ever. Um, so wouldn't want to ever take that away from the athletes. Uh, I had nothing but um, a lot of people telling me good things about it. People around the world, when I went to Estonia that summer afterwards at Collegiate Worlds, you know, they're like, can you come run meets here? Uh, <laughs> um, so like, you know, I, I would never take away that experience from the lifters. And I don't think if not only myself, uh, but other people who started the team at Ohio State with me that helped run the meet closely had had the kind of like foresight to do this. Um, you know, all of us collectively, I, I think we would still do it. Um, I wish I would have known about freight elevators. <laughs> um, but, but I think I have to agree with you because 
the reason being is that you weren't doing it for the money. You're doing it for the experience for the lifters. And so the lifters still got the experience, even though you were stressed out all the time in the months yeah. leading up to it and after the meet. So if you were someone who was trying to make like $100,000 off the meet and you ended up losing $15,000 off the meet, let's say, then I would go back and say, John, don't do this. Don't do this. Yeah. But because you went into it not wanting to make money, you want to put all the money into the meet and give that experience to lifters. That's what they got. So I, I think I agree with you that you would have gone back and done it again. Yeah. And like, I, I guess to benefit certainly the national office as well, like, um, you know, they've been putting on amazing meets recently. And, you know, I think a lot of that started with Josh Roar. Even before the national office took over, I think Josh Roar really raised the bar. Um, and huge credit to him for that. Like, I, I would have never had a vision in my mind of doing this meet had I not done Josh Roar's Raw Nationals. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's a lot. It's, it's huge undertaking. Um, you know, my my wife, who wasn't my wife yet, was a huge part of the meet. She ran all the drug testing and organized all of that. Um, you know, I promised her she would never have to drug test again after that, uh, which Ron Breaker had her drug test this weekend, and I forgot to tell him my rule, so that's my fault. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly believe as a collective effort, anything like this can be accomplished. Um, I'm sure you remember it was probably about nine months out. We started having almost weekly calls as a group. Um, and I think that was very important because we never skipped a beat. Um, and honestly, I think, you know, if all of these meets started to be run by a committee of consistent people that do it year to year, um, you could deliver a high quality meet and also save a little um, so that you don't have as much of a risk because you know what you're doing. You might have long-term contracts with companies which will help you save money. Um, but yeah, I would definitely like to see collegiate nationals, um, continue to be run at a very high caliber. Um, and I think that'll only happen if like there's a committee put together just specifically for running a meet of that size, um, because it's also the most competitive meet in the world, hands down, in my opinion. Um, you know, I've been to raw worlds or collegiate worlds and, you know, there's a lot of competition there, but there's nothing like the atmosphere of a collegiate nationals. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I've gone to a few of the collegiate nationals over the years from, I think, maybe 2013 it was in Florida. And then obviously I've been to uh, Rhode Island and Texas and Ohio. And it's just like the first time and even the most recent time, it's just crazy seeing these kids run back and forth and just cheer for their lifter on this platform and then run over to the other side to that platform cheer. They all have their little chants and Gino gets them all going with their chants. You got the raging Cajun with their cowbells just banging that thing as loud as they can in the venue. So it's just really crazy and, and really different from any other meet until recently. You'd say maybe Raw Nationals prime time where the Arnold is starting to get a little bit more lively and a little bit louder and get yeah. music in there and stuff like that. But Collegiate Nationals has been that way for like a decade. Yeah, and it is truly like, you know, I, I sadly never got to lift in one myself, but it is my favorite meet. And like I said, when we started this, you know, I've lifted in the Arnold several times, won, a, won junior on nationals. But to me, my favorite experience is always collegiate nationals. Yeah, I never got a chance to compete in it, too. I mean, I had a very short time as a USAPL lifter when I was in college, but also back then, collegiate nationals only equipped. And we were just a very small team and we were all raw lifters. We didn't know anything about equip lifting. We had just started. 
So we had just focused on local meets and then we ended up doing raw nationals in 2012 and 2013. So I never got a chance to compete at collegiate nationals, but at least I got a chance to attend and, and volunteer and be able to watch all the other lifters. Yeah, one of my favorite photos of one of my lifters, Sean Mosier, has uh, you running the deadlift jack in the background. <laughs> <laughs> was that at Scott's? No, that was at Mike's. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, and like that atmosphere, what, what's interesting is um, having gone to every one of the collegiate university worlds that has happened since. Um, in the first year, none of the other college teams from around the world had that competitive vibe. Uh, they didn't focus on points or anything like that. Uh, but in the most uh, recent in Estonia and then also the one before that in Pilsen, um, the, the international universities have started picking up on that vibe too. But that was something essentially taught to them by the U.S. teams coming to the first university worlds in Belarus, uh, you know, focusing on the team aspect. Yeah. For going forward for collision nationals, is there a – top destination or maybe top three destinations you would like to see it go one day oh man that's a tough one uh i've firmly believed that the meet has to rotate around the country um but the logistics of that in terms of again costs are the deciding factor like you know the meat needs to go to california at some point but california is super expensive all the venues are um and so it's kind of you know and I believe it has to rotate because it benefits the economics of the teams, right? You know, you might spend a bunch of money one year to go to a meet, but if the next year is not as much, it really benefits you as a college team. Because this isn't like raw nationals where it's one person paying out of pocket. This is like college teams. And for some of the Texas teams, it's, you know, 40, 50, 60 people going. So it's a lot of money. Um, so I, I think West Coast, as far west as we can get it, um, and then I think it needs to bounce back to the east because, you know, obviously um, Steve's man meet didn't really – it's still happening, but it didn't pan out in the way that it was originally intended to. Yeah, it'd be definitely interesting to see it west coast, either California or maybe southwest in, in Arizona to get those collegiate teams that are over there that don't yep. really want to come all the way out east. And some of them compete maybe USPA or maybe they don't compete collegiately. They just compete at Raw Nationals. So it'd be cool to yeah, go over there West Coast, get a different location, hit those people. I also think it might be cool, though maybe a little bit dangerous for college kids to do Las Vegas. Yeah. Well, it so seems- that's that's currently the debate going on. Like, you know, Vegas is close enough to California to get those West Coast schools and the venues are cheap. Um, but like, <laughs> is that the environment and is that the uh, place that we think would benefit the meat yeah that's why i said it might be a little bit risky but like plane tickets to las vegas sometimes can be really cheap hotel rooms depending on where you get can be cheap i don't know what the venue cost would be but then it gives people a ton of stuff to do afterwards if they want to go do stuff Um, and that hits on the last part i think about planning national meets going forward whether it be collegiates or other national meets like you know people spend a lot of money to come to these meets they need to have something else to do feasibly and easily besides just the meat you know like people spend all this money like they need to have some form of a vacation out of it as well um because otherwise it's like this the sustainability long term isn't there for people economically yeah i know like you or i when we go to a meet we might be there coaching every single day 
but all my lifters had up going to do something else. So like some of my lifters went to Spokane, they weren't necessarily going to be competitive top 10 or anything like that, but they turned into a vacation. They went to Seattle afterwards. They went to a bunch of breweries. They went hiking and did a lot of fun stuff. Same thing with, with Lombard, a bunch of them went and, and tried out a bunch of different food and went to the, the bean and all that kind of stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, it's good to have a destination spot so that people can actually go and say, okay, I might be spending a thousand dollars on a plane ticket and hotel, but I'm not just competing for four hours. I'm also going to go spend a few days doing other things. Yeah, for sure. The, the other destination I thought, which it brings it back to East coast, but it'd be interesting if maybe you could pick a center spot between all these major teams. Like if we did like Memphis, Tennessee, so that way you can bring the Northeast, you can bring the South, you can bring Ohio, all that stuff like that. Those major teams into a central location and also be somewhere that we haven't done before. So I, I guess years ago, the last time I was kind of in the Midwest, there was one in St. Louis. That'd be a kind of a good middle middle point. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's, man, looking back, I can't believe that it's been so long since this meet happened. <laughs> you, now, we talked about you going back in time and talking to your old self. But going forward, could you see yourself in whatever five years ahead of time, 10 years from now, ever running a national meet again if there was an availability for it? Uh, I told myself and my wife I would never do it again. Um, however, if it was like if it was a true like committee put together and this was like not their sole job, but sole responsibility in terms of planning stuff for powerlifting, I, I think it'd be a lot easier, um, especially having long term contracts venues picked out maybe even three years in advance um because then you mitigate a lot of the stress now to maybe this will entice you a little bit more as a one-off meet would you think you would ever do like a north american collegiate championship or a world university worlds meet i mean <laughs> we we know the economic challenges of running it a international meet uh, for those that don't know and correct me if I'm wrong Arian but per per entry fee the meet organizer only gets about 15 euros yeah um, so if you're trying to run a meet of the caliber that we ran the meet in Columbus you could not do it on 15 euros per lifter um, uh, obviously some of your expenses would be lower because you're not running a five platform meet but then yeah there's so many more expenses of bringing in the live stream people and the referees and all that stuff yeah. like that you'd have to get some kind of major funding from the city to be able to host like a tell them you're hosting a university world championship and and get several tens of thousands of dollars from them yeah if if the funding could be um actually located and be a for sure thing i would i'd run an international meet in a heartbeat because you know, I would love to see University Worlds here, uh, one platform, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> to do one platform at any level is so much easier than what we did. I mean, in terms of number of refs you need, number of warm-up platforms, pure number of, like, hard work of carrying plywood, you know, like, it's so much easier. So, world meet, sure. Um I guess the biggest LOL of 2019 Collegiate Nationals is two months after my meet ended, Columbus did pass a bill to give money to major sports that brought in a lot of revenue to the city. So I could have secured about $30,000 additional to run this meet. Um, so that would have been great. Um, 
I don't know unless collegiate worlds takes off and gets, uh, I don't know, let's say 600 lifters per year. I don't think I could secure that type of funding from the city. Um, if they would give me that type of funding, then for sure it could happen. Um, because you know, costs are linear based on the number of, well, exponential based on the number of platforms you have. So if it was only one platform, then it'd be really easy to run it on $30,000 or less. But hopefully that uh, hopefully will give a little bit more insight into like how much more planning and preparation and money goes into a national meet versus a local meet and especially a national meet that's five platforms versus just like a local meet that's one platform is, as you said, a lot of the expenses become exponential. It's not just because you're getting more lifters that you can then cover more expenses to the same amount one-to-one is some, some of the expenses get a, a lot bigger and a lot worse taking on more lifters. So it's almost better to keep some kind of cap where you're just in that sweet spot of, of covering everything. Mm -hmm, for sure. Uh, but just to close off, I want to ask some more questions about you again. Uh, one of the things is you said you're, how you're getting back into lifting and you're trying to get up the ranks of the A3s again. Is just do you, what general goals do you have in the upcoming years as a lifter and as a coach since you do both? Yeah, I mean, so uh, prior to taking the bid for collegiate nationals my lifting was going pretty well you know i prior to 2016 i had done a 295 squat kilograms um but you know when you start adding on more stress of running meets coaching a team you know how it is um yeah uh it there's only there's only so much time in a day um my big focus has been for this next year going forward kind of peeling away a lot of layers that i had I've taught a lot of new people how to run meets. I've sold off more equipment so other people could run meets. Um, and really that's all about my long-term plan of trying to get back into being competitive myself. Um, obviously what I lifted in 2015 would not win an Ardle now. Um, so that it's gonna take a lot of work. Um, but my all-time goal was to have a four-time bodyweight squat. And I don't think I'm gonna stop until I get that. And that's raw. So I was close at one point. There's no reason why I can't get back there again. Yeah, you're still a young man. I don't always feel it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and do you have any goals as far as uh, coaching goes? Oh, man, I had one. You know one of my coaching goals. Um, sadly, that's not going to happen due to COVID. Um, um, but no, I mean, so Ohio State at this point has won half of all the world championships since the university um, worlds has returned. We've won four of the eight titles as a team. Um, I'd like to continue that at least. Um, hoping this year that I can take both my men's and women's team. And I would like to collectively win both sides again. Is that a big gonna, is that a big ask? It is, but I think it's possible. I was gonna say not to put your teams on the spot, but out of those four titles, how many were the men's team and how many were the women's team? Uh, two men's and two women's. Oh, there you go. <laughs> nice and even. Yeah, and, uh, and and the harder feat to beat, and, you know, I'll tote my teams for this, like, you know, in 20, what was it, 20, I don't know, whatever, the second one, it was in Pacha's room, we won both the men's and women's side, and so it's, you know, I doubt you see a college team win both for a while, especially as it gets more competitive in Europe, in the, in the university sphere. Um but yeah, I, you know, I love college powerlifting. 
you know, I spend so much of my own dime on it and that's just because I enjoy it so much. Um, and it's great to be able to bring lifters in as freshmen in college, um, have never lifted before or have never power lifted before. And by the time they graduate, you've made them a national or world champion. And that's a huge feat. You know, there's really good lifters out there in the college sphere, but few of them in say the South or a couple other schools, um, were fresh in college. A lot of those really good lifters in the college sphere started lifting as a high school lifter. And so I take a lot of pride in being able to take them from never power lifted to national or world champion by the time they're a senior. Yeah. yeah. And the, the last question I had for you was just this little side project that you have called lift for life. You want to give like a few minutes just talking about what lift for life is. Yeah. I mean, uh, lift for life is man. It's been a crazy part of my life ever since 2015 when the organization started. Um, or is it 14? Sorry, my mind's lost after teaching today. Um, but Lift for Life is all about the community aspect of powerlifting, and it's about bringing that aspect to communities in third world countries. Um, specifically, we're in Zimbabwe. Uh, we had plans to expand to Kenya this past year, but obviously COVID had other ideas. Um, but we operate lots of local gyms in Zimbabwe. We employ local welders to build equipment. We don't really ship any equipment in, um, though we did just get a comp rack there from Malaika, which is nice uh, because then even our welders in the country can see the rack and know how to build their racks better. Um, and so we just focus on community outreach, teaching kids how to lift. Um, a lot of people are like, how does powerlifting help out a community? Well, I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen a group of powerlifters, they always build each other up. They cheer for each other. Um, we actually, it's helped a lot of people get jobs in like the security sector, uh, just being more like fit. Um, again, the side thing of needing equipment has built a secondary economy there for building this equipment. Um, and it's really just expanded ways I never imagined. We even have been doing like local community gardens and raising kitchens um, because there's some food shortages there right now. And so anywhere we can assist and build these communities up through lifting uh, is what we're about. Yeah, it's pretty cool that you're, you're going in there for some community outreach, but yeah, you might be, like you said, building jobs with people welding racks, or maybe they're going to build other equipment. Mm -hmm. Then maybe you'll get coaches that can be able to teach classes and stuff yep. to other people. Maybe one day they can start running their own meets and so they can make money off of running their own meets. And then you have all these different jobs uh, and revenue streams coming in through that. Yeah, and it all started through lifting. <laughs> Yeah. If, if a lifter wants to get involved since they can, what are like the different ways they can help out? Um, so we have an ambassador program now, which is like a lot of college students helping us just build it on the ground level in terms of reaching out to their local communities, telling more people about it. Um, we also just have um, we have our website where people can donate. Um, we're obviously always looking for new partners. We have a gym partnership where we send out partners to gyms if they want to pay us uh well donate monthly to us we have about six gyms that do that uh kenmore barbell was the very first to ever start doing that um and so that's just like you know even if a gym can only do like 20 bucks a month it, it goes a long way in the long term and we've always done a lot with a little bit of money um if somebody is really good at writing grants and wants to donate time that's still an area we're trying to grow in um but yeah i mean just anybody reaching out we do 
every summer we've started doing outreach trips. Kim went on our Kim Walford went on our first one. Um, and so there's lots of ways people can just reach out, share us, repost us, spreading the word as much as possible. Yeah, I'm looking at the website. I see you guys have some t-shirts for sale as well. Does that money go towards this? Yeah, it does. Uh, we're actually trying to sell out of those because we've had them for a while. There you go. So we'll put the, the link to the website and the link to the Instagram page in the description so you guys can look at it. But they have t-shirts and they got tank tops and you even have a A7 men's and women's bar grip shirt if they want to have a bar grip shirt. Yeah, and there may be some more secret news coming with a second rendition of that soon. And so part of this also, lifters can go with you guys and take a trip to Zimbabwe, right, and actually help out? Yep. How many days is that? Um, I believe it's last year's got canceled, got postponed to next year, but it, it was, I believe it was about 12 days. Awesome. They get to go and they'll get to experience things as well, right? They get to do like some touristy stuff. Yeah, so right at the end of the trip, they they go to Victoria Falls, which is one of the seven natural wonders of the earth. Um, but yeah, it's just an opportunity for people to get to see what we're doing. Uh, so that way they can come back and tell people more about what we're doing and kind of showing them firsthand that we are accomplishing what we said we we're setting out to accomplish. Cool. I think that about covers it. We're almost at the one hour mark. You had a long day of teaching, did an hour podcast. I know you're going to go train now. So thank you for coming on to the podcast and talking about all this stuff. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, no problem. Hopefully everyone enjoyed it. Um, like I said, the, the description will have a links to all the stuff. If you want to go check out Lift for Life, donate to them or go on one of these trips. Uh, but that's about it. And always make it nice. Secrets in that black hole you call a brain before it's too late. Really, we just wanna scream something, only pretend to believe something. I know you're baying for blood, I wanna turn you around. Please remain calm, the end has arrived.